Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today we're focusing on our smartphones and ourselves, how to be a happy human in the digital era. My first guest today is Dr. Ravi Chandra. He is a psychiatrist and author in San Francisco. He's also a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and in 2016 was awarded a proclamation by the San Francisco Board of Supervisors for his community and humanitarian work. His book, Face Buddha, Transcendence in the Age of Social Networks, is his debut nonfiction work and a 2017 Nautilus Book Award winner. He writes blogs for Psychology Today on psychiatry, spirituality, and culture, and for the Center for Asian American Media on Film. He is a published poet and author of A Fox Peaks Out poems and a short book of essays on Asian American anger. And I am delighted to have him with me today. Hey, Ravi, thanks for being with me. Thanks so much for having me on board. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, let's talk about the psychological research of social media and its effects on us individually and as a culture. Well, social media has been a profound kind of intrusion into our lives. And there's a lot of, uh, there's good in it, there's bad in it. And I kind of started my journey in 2007 and had a lot of good experiences, uh, but then would emerge from my uh, time on social media disoriented with what I call face bivalence. I wasn't sure quite where the time went. I, I was dissatisfied and frustrated in some ways, and I needed to explore what was happening to my mind and heart as I was uh, trying to connect online. And um, so I began to uh, both analyze my own experience and also plunge into the psychological literature. And most of it has been done on Facebook, uh, particularly at that time. And uh, so 
so the book is an attempt to bring together uh, my uh, a memoir of my experience of relationships online and off and a state-of-the-art exploration of the psychological research that's been done on social media, and also using the tools of Buddhism, mindfulness, and compassion to explore what happens to the mind and the heart and help us make better decisions about our time online and in the real world. I love what you say about face bivalence, because I, too, uh, uh, sort of forayed into the Facebook world in about 2007-ish, 2008. And it was lovely at the time, right? It was really a way to connect and reconnect. And then something happened. Yeah, I think, you know, I I describe in my book, there are several stages of uh, migrating to the online world. And it's similar to what psychologists have described as culture shock of moving to a different country. And the online world, Facebook is actually the largest country in the world. You know, it's over uh, 2 billion members. It's uh, larger than the Catholic Church. It approaches the number of Christians uh, worldwide. So it's a big place. And so we're migrating to this new environment, and uh, what happens to us there? And so initially, the stages of culture shock are first uh, an exuberance, an excitement, uh, enjoyment, and then more ambivalence and uh, regrets, perhaps, uh, of what we're encountering, and then uh, some kind of adaptation to the environment or an exit from the environment, and those cycles can repeat again. Um, So people go on and off Facebook. Um, So I think it's important uh, in my book, uh, I talk about, I I try to give people wisdom and knowledge about what's happening to them on social media, what could be happening. And then they really have to make the conscious decisions, the adaptation that will be the healthiest for them. And I'm not heavy handed uh, for what other people could choose in their lives. I personally had to deactivate because I found it uh, not satisfying on the most important issues of my life and how I thought uh, we could get to healing and happiness. Um, I thought instead it was a siren call that would distract me from the important work of relationship in the real world. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, you know, I have found uh, in the course of the last you know, 10 plus years that I limit, I have limited my uh, amount of time on social media because it it takes me from life, does not plug me into life. And we live in a world as professionals where, you know, this is how we help get the word out about our brands and let friends and family know what we're doing. But it does take us out of the stream of presence. Exactly. And that embodied presence is so powerful and it's so easy to get caught up and this is the addiction piece in these simple pleasures of uh seeing a funny photo or perhaps uh you know following news online that uh that is enraging and and really compelling and we feel like we have to know all the details and and social media can become a cataclysmic barrage of traumatic events that you just keep uh keep high on our on our threat uh, screens and threat detectors. And, and so it, I call Twitter our auxiliary amygdala. You know, that threat <laughs> so so the, exactly. So we're plugged in in a way. Uh, uh, and, and the question is, you know, where do we find connection and peace? And that embodied presence is so important in, in the world is face-to-face or real-time conversations uh, where we can hear tone of voice, 
in the ideal circumstance, make eye contact, notice body language. And that's all deeply soothing. And that's woven into our evolutionary history. And when we get online, what often what often can happen is the cyber disinhibition, the uh, the the comments that uh, that are, are hurtful, etc. That can happen. And plus, uh, I think for me, you know, being someone who's interested in political issues, I found that uh, uh, that conversations would get rather polarized online in my community, certainly. And um, you would, and I've heard about this in other communities as well. And you would have a hard time creating that space of mutual understanding and mutual validation. Um, and instead, people uh, would, uh, you know, there's a saying in psychology uh, that uh, you can be right or related. You can be right or happy. And um, so yes. if we insist on being right, we won't be related and happy. And that's the challenge. And, you know, in this whole world, we, we've got this massive situation of polarization. And how do we kind of bring it back to a that uh, the quality of embodied presence where we can soothe each other with contact and with understanding uh, and compassion. I, I think that's really so important. In 2017, there was an episode of 60 Minutes that I thought was so incredible. And in fact, it was aired twice in 2017. It was entitled Brain Hacking. And in that episode, they were talking about how neuroscience and neuropsychology is being used by social media and app developers to really tap into the parts of the brain that ignite addiction, right? The pleasure center of the brain and the chemical release that we get when we see those likes or we see that uh, um, illusion of connection through social media. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, because these are the hormones that we live for. Sure. And actually, there's been an MRI scan study uh, where there are similarities, uh, though not complete overlap, but similarities between the brains of uh, people who are addicted to gambling or drugs uh, and uh, internet addiction. So uh, there is there is that overlap, and it is about the reward system and uh, those little you know uh, getting a like uh, is you can feel a little rush when you get a like uh, and or a comment, etc. And that's all designed uh, quite uh, quite meticulously to keep you in the system, uh, yes. to keep you uh, to keep you hooked in the box in the Facebook box. And, um, and so, uh, so I think that's, you know, but, but again, we have, we cannot make adaptations. I've heard teenagers say, I don't know anyone who looks at the newsfeed anymore. So I think there's an evolving culture around this, but I don't think the, the device companies, uh, the app companies are helping us in the way they could. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And, you know, I, I do work in addiction and trauma recovery and I tell clients, you must put that phone down. If you're if you're in a session, if you're in a group, you need to put it away because you're retraining your brain to learn a how to be present and to regulate that drip of, of dopamine and oxytocin that we crave. Right. I mean, we crave pleasure. We crave connection and we get a little a little uh, tweak of both of those in a lesser dose when we hit up our phones. And, and, and another level is, and you get curious about what's happening on the phone too. So that's curiosity and that addiction, uh, that, and so all leads to you being attached to your phone. 
And that can, that can distract you from the real world as well. That kind of, uh, it's a strange kind of love, I suppose, uh, <laughs> of attachment that we have to these devices. And that's, that's, uh, I think we have to look at that. Um, you know, how far do we want to be attached to things versus people? Um, that's an open question. Yes. Oh, I like that. You know, there's your next book, Attachment Theory and and Digital Devices. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You're right. I mean, that that you know, I never thought of it in that way. And there is um, an extreme attachment to these things and a fear of um, safety if we if we don't have them nearby. You know, to ask a client, and I don't know if you see clients in your practice, but to ask them to put their device in a in a cubby or in a basket, you might as well be asking them to leave their right arm there with it. Right. And that's why now there are springing up these detox hotels, detox retreats where you check in your phone and you leave it. So there is this growing recognition uh, that uh, that we need time away from these devices to recover our natural processes of healing uh, uh, in the human human mind and heart. We're going to take a break. We're talking with Dr. Ravi Chandra about his book, Face Buddha, Transcendence in the Age of Social Network. To learn more, please visit www.facebuddha.co. On Twitter, you can connect with Dr. Ravi Chandra at Going to Peace, and it's the number two, at Going to Peace. And on Facebook, that page is Face Buddha Book. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are we happy yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about our smartphones and ourselves, having a discussion about how to be human in the digital era. Returning to the conversation with Dr. Ravi Chandra. So, Robbie, I want to chat with you about the impact of social media on racism, on public health issues, voter suppression, gun control. We could go on and on and on about the news, fake and real. Yes. Well, that's a pretty broad range. I think 
first of all, uh, you know, social media is a uh, an attempt to belong and an attempt to uh, find self-expression. So people try to find community with uh, varying degrees of success, and they also find ways to self-express about the issues that distress them. And so we see these uh, things going on, and and uh, the challenge is that online. Uh, that that anger is the most viral emotion, and this spreads faster than happiness, sadness, disgust, or joy, uh, according to a couple of studies. So this is what, and the problem is, are we when we engage online, are we entraining our mind to be angry, and therefore taking us away from uh, maybe empathy or compassion or some kind of different way to hold anger? I mean, anger is not good or bad. It's present in human relationships, but I think anger can only be resolved with empathy and relationship and also building the skills of self-compassion and mindfulness within. So I think, and a sense of common humanity that we're all in this together in some way. So all of that has to happen, but I don't, I don't, I didn't see it happening online. I, I feel like, you know, we usually ask, what is the internet angry about today? Um, and, uh, <laughs> Everything. <laughs> Right, right. And it's just becomes, you know, and sometimes you can check Twitter to see, okay, what's the latest trending focus of anger? But how do we, that's a short circuit. I mean, that anger is a, a plea to be heard and a plea yes. for uh, action. And how do we close the circuit? How do we feel connected? And I think it's only through empathic relatedness. And, you know, George Valent, the person who ran the grant study, the longest studying, longest running study of human development uh, out of Harvard, um, he, you know, studied, I forget how many, 100 uh, men over uh, 70 years was the whole uh, grant study. But the final conclusion was happiness is love, full stop. Yeah. And, and that's relationships, warm, supportive relationships led to happiness. And um, so if we're talking about harvesting happiness, we're talking about planting love, <laughs> planting relationships, then you'll be able to harvest happiness. And my worry is that with superficial relationships or with issue-based and perhaps just kind of single-sided communications online, you don't get to real uh, a depth of love and connectedness. And uh, it could leave people unhappy and dissatisfied. And that's what some of the studies show is that the more time you spend on Facebook, the more dissatisfied you are with yourself, with your friends, the more depression, anxiety, mm -hmm. social comparison. And so that's that's a real problem. But I wanted to go back to anger because while we see social media as a sort of fertile ground for expression of anger and negativity, and you talk about the need to be heard, when we look at anger as a secondary emotion and what lies beneath anger is something much deeper. You know, I think it's, you know, loss, fear, grief, Absolutely. frustration, emotions that we might not feel as comfortable expressing, A, because we might not possess the vocabulary to do so, right? So anger is what flares up because that's what just percolates the quickest. Right. My, my shortcut is saying anger is sorrow turned outwards. It's getting down to that lower level, I think, then you can feel the common humanity, because we're all, we all can have that sorrow of loneliness, of rejection, of feeling uh, defeated by social circumstances. I think that's such a widespread feeling. And, um, you know, I think instead of, I think there's a tendency with anger to call out people, uh, but I hope we can kind of call in people with compassion, 
you know, I think that's a that's a much better basis for community. But uh, I mean, anger again. Sometimes things need to be said, and I appreciate that. It's just I wonder how to close the circuit and how how to help people because you know I've certainly seen people who get who get in the zones of being angry about things, and that's very hard to uh, to come back to ground and to to uh, to connection and so forth. Um, so, uh, and I think we're living in we're living in traumatic times, and uh, we really have to help each other. I think find ways to uh, connect and to soothe and to really dip down into our common humanity. Uh, and to see where we really are more alike than different. And that is a challenge. When I have my partner, Christopher, he is a very mild mannered guy. You know, he's a very gentle, smart, funny soul, but he gets going on his political rants on Facebook and whoo, he can he stirs it up, you know. He stirs the pot, and I guess he has to have an outlet somewhere for the frustration. But it is astounding, right. you know. Right. I mean, for me, you know, I think there have been some of my my most popular blog posts uh, have been kind of uh, uh, angry rants, you know, uh, Katy Perry at the American <laughs> Music Awards. I mean, you know, it's still my most popular, you know, written maybe six years ago. Um, but then I realized how, you know, how. Uh, complicated that was. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I still support that expression. Um, but then, you know, I think, uh, for me, it's, uh, uh, I think I, I tend to be, uh, more ambivalent about anger, I guess. Uh, I see its value, but I, I also want to, uh, get down to the deeper level. Yeah. Um, and so I write, I write less popular blogs, uh, that are called a noble sadness, you know, uh, uh talking about, uh, how underneath anger is, sadness and sorrow. And that's, that's not nearly as viral, but, uh, but that's kind of what I hope we can talk about uh, in our culture. Yeah. I think you bring up a good point and I love that you add nobility to it because I, I think that there uh, is a requirement of having a level of valor in approaching the, the darker sides of our emotions and the willingness to go there and uh, be the V word, you know, that vulnerable, that vulnerable word that Brene Brown talks about. Yes. Yeah, it, it's tough. I mean, I think, you know, people, uh, especially when you have anything to protect, you might feel the need to uh, to defend yourself against emotion and vulnerability. And so I think that's one of the ways where we get away from the values of the heart and we start being about power and control and, you know, dismissing the values of the heart and compassion. And I think, I hope we're in a point of transition in, in this world where we, where we see we, this is not working and we yeah. have to, we have to co, we have to, uh, uh, connect to the mind and the heart to have a deeper sense of our humanity. And, um, I think that only happens with shared conversation and presence and a lot of, you know, cultivation through whatever means, uh, works for you. Um, I use, uh, Buddhist practices of mindfulness and self-compassion and compassion cultivation, just uh, just trying to keep 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 going. Uh, me too, and not the me too that you were talking about earlier, but the I, I work to do that as well, and to the work that we put out here with the show is you know meant to be a positive contagion that you know we we do send out through social media social media is not bad it's the intention you know with which we use it right right, we, right. it's but it's not bad it's but it's good and bad so we yes. just really have to be conscious of the ways that it can can be bad i think 
Yeah. And, it, and you know, we talk about, um, you mentioned in your book about psychological voter suppression. Well, the entire social media experience is is a psychological design. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think uh, depending on, you know, how I think there's probably going to be a, a large uh, turnout this year for the midterms. But uh, but I think we have to face it that there's there's uh, ways that people are that governments are trying to limit voter turnout and that uh, dispiriting people online may be one of them. Yes. Um, so, so I think we have to be wary of that uh, and and get down to our core intentions. We must vote. I'm going to do the plug for that because we do we do a show to stimulate voter registration every year. And, and we must vote because that, that is how change happens. You know, and if, if you're unhappy, then then get out and vote, because if you don't vote, then you can't whine. Absolutely. <laughs> You know, to, to kind of put it uh, as, a, you know, a cold, hard fact, the book to learn more. And I urge our, our listeners to go and grab the book, Face Buddha, Transcendence in the Age of Social Network by the author and my guest today, Dr. Ravi Chandra. To learn more about Ravi's work, please visit his website, www.facebuddha.co. On Twitter, he is at going to peace, and the number two is articulated on that handle. And on Facebook, you can find him at Face Buddha Book. And this is a really good read, provocative, something that we all need to be aware of and talk about in our conversations, hopefully in person with those that we love and care about, making eye contact, watching for body language, all the good stuff that we've talked about today. Ravi Chandra, thanks for hanging out with me today. Thank you so much, Lisa. Really appreciate it. We're going to need to take a break and we'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about something that is super interesting and super important. And that is the relationship between our digital devices, ourselves, and how to be a happy human in the digital era. My next guest is Amy Blankson. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. What a joy it is to be here with you. 
I feel the same way. So let's talk about the future of happiness, because there are some skeptics and curmudgeons out there who think, hmm, happiness, the future with all that's going on, not so much. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I hear this often. Um, We are bombarded by the media with information about how technology is destroying the fabric of our society, how it's disconnecting our families. It's literally heroin for uh, digital heroin um, because it's so addictive. And what I felt was that there was so much information in this field that I really wanted to explore a little bit more about understanding, is this really true? Are we really um, outpacing ourselves with technology um, faster than our happiness can keep up with it. And so I did some digging into the research and decided to write a book on this topic because I felt like it was a pain point that I hear time and again from the audiences I speak to who are just worried about where are we heading in the future? What is this really going to look like? And not to do a spoiler alert, but <laughs> the, the good news is that I don't think we're as, as bad off as the media portrays. I think that there are certainly risks, there are distractions, there are dangers with the modern digital era. But I do think that the future looks incredibly bright in terms of how technology can help us to tune in and not just to zone out, that there are ways that we can use technology better that are within our grasp to shape how the future is going to look. And What I wanted to do through my book was to call people to the mat to say, hey, you know, yes, there are some challenges that we're facing that we've never had to face before, but there's some wonderful opportunities we have to embrace technology for the good. And what do we need to do now to set ourselves up for a future of happiness and success? And so that led to to a a book filled with strategies, with um, gadgets and gizmos and devices that I've uncovered through my research that I hope will help readers to find new ways to interact through technology with their families and their colleagues and um, really to use it for themselves as well for personal development. Let's go back to uh, where you started talking about digital heroin, because I think this is important for people to recognize that technology, the way software systems are designed and the way these apps are designed, the developers are trying to hack into our brains to get us hooked on these things mm-hmm. because we get a little dopamine release, right? We get a little teeny drip every time we click, swipe, like whatever, and, and, and also oxytocin. I mean, there are chemical reactions that are going on in our brains that are attracting us to these devices. No doubt. And you are so right. I mean, we are swimming upstream trying to make technology useful to us in a non-addictive way, but I do think it's possible. There's a a fellow named Tristan Harris, who was actually the Google design ethicist um, at Stanford. Well, he started at Stanford. He was part of the Center for Persuasive Technology. So this is the, the company and the department at Stanford that was responsible for creating things like the Amazon recommended products algorithm or Facebook, who should you be friends with? Um, it's a it's a type of technology design that is responsible for nudging you in a certain direction. And while they can nudge you in, in fantastic ways for better choices, they can also nudge you in some incredibly negative ways that if you are trying to stay on your budget, it's in, it's increasingly difficult to do so when Amazon knows your favorite color and they know that you like peppermint chocolate and they know that 
you are uh, getting ready for Black Friday sales. <laughs> so <laughs> all this information is is really culminating in uh, a scenario where it makes it even more difficult for us to stay on budget or to make good choices because we're getting this flood of information into our lives. And so Tristan Harris actually was speaking with some of the Google design executives about the ethics of what we create with these type of persuasive technologies. And he felt like while Google definitely heard him and understood that this was an important facet of design, they also had a lot of market pressures to create products that were increasingly addictive, that had higher numbers of page views, and that were encouraging people to stay on the apps or the websites for longer, because that's how companies measure success, right? And so what he did is he actually left Google and went and formed a company he calls Time Well Spent. And the idea is to support companies and business models that will foster a desire to create apps that measure their success based on how effective they are for us, which is a shocking and novel concept, right? So not how long you're staying on the app, not how many people download the app, but does the app actually work, which is crazy, right? Um, And so he's been supporting a number of different initiatives uh, from Calendly, which I use myself. It's a, a calendaring program that helps you eliminate the amount of time that you spend going back and forth between setting up Google appointments or um, meeting appointments. And so it just shows people your calendar. They select a time that works for them. The program automatically will send out notifications for both of you to put it on your calendar and you're done. Um, so the idea is that you're using your time more effectively to do what you want to do. And that's why we started using technology in the first place is so that we could have more quality time and to do the things we really want to do. And instead, what we find is technology keeps drawing us away into this web of more time on the computers, more time on the apps. And the idea that we really want to focus on is how do we really use that time well? And so I love what Tristan is doing, what he's created. And I feel like that is so important to shaping this conversation. And it's important to think about where, what are, what are we downloading? What kind of apps are we buying into? What kind of gadgets do we ascribe to? Because the more that we buy from apps and devices and gadgets and companies that are trying to become addictive services, the more that we're sending the message that that's the kind of content we want. Um, So I call people out in the book uh, to be conscious consumers, to be thoughtful about the types of apps they're downloading, to put pressure on organizations to create the types of programs that we want to see. Do we want more apps and gadgets that help us tune in? Do we want um, devices that don't send us notifications every five minutes? Do we want less email threads and and subscribing automatically to things that we don't actually want? Um, So I think there's a real movement to move away from this digital heroin into using technology for the simplest of purposes and then being done with it so we can get on with living life. I agree with you. And I think that you bring up something that is really important, and that is the vice virtue of technology and the silver lining. Like many of us receive so much, you know, so many notifications, so many emails, and we're juggling so many different kinds of apps and programs that it brings the consumer to the point of learning discernment. Absolutely. 
Say a little bit more about learning discernment and what you mean by that. Well, what I mean by learning discernment is that, you know, if you, if you have a, a flurry of activity, you know, it's just a burst of energy and you find out that you cannot manage everything that is coming in or being thrown at you. And I, and I, and I go through this almost every day. I've gotten good at discerning, well, I, this is not of use to me anymore. I need to either unsubscribe, block, or um, sort of call out of the pool of technology that I'm working with every day. And I find that that is the upside, you know, that I'm learning how to be a little bit more clear and focused on what I don't want, and then dialing in or drilling down to those things that I do or are of use to me. Absolutely. I think the more that we can do that, the better. Um, In fact, one of the services that I've fallen in love with and um, have been starting to use myself is called unroll.me. And in one fell swoop, it will capture all of the subscriptions that you have in your email and help you to unroll from all of them all at once, one click of a button, as opposed to having to unsubscribe one at a time um, very slowly. I think that that's a very useful and helpful process to be able to um, just be done with it, get off of all those lists that are distracting, um, turn off all the non-human notifications that are just reminders, um, uninstall those apps that you don't ever use and to focus in on what's most important to you. And there's a movement called digital minimalism that is really beginning to emerge that, that says, yes, we love technology, but let's, let's cut down to the most important things so that we're not constantly distracted by all the other things. Wow. We're going to need to take a break. And before we do, I want to give Amy's contact information. The book we're talking about once again is The Future of Happiness, Five Modern Strategies for Balancing Productivity and Well-Being in the Digital Era. You can learn more at amyblankson.com. On Twitter, you can find her at amyblankson and on Facebook, amy.blankson. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We're going to continue the conversation between Amy Blankson and myself about our smartphones, ourselves, and how to be happy in the digital era. Let's get back to the conversation. 
We're talking with Amy Blankson today. She is the author of the new book, The Future of Happiness, Five Modern Strategies for Balancing Productivity and Well-Being in the Digital Era. In the first segment, we were talking about how technology is both a vice and a virtue and how to perhaps dial it back. And Amy gave us a couple of really good ideas for managing our calendar. You mentioned Calendly. You also mentioned another program that will help you clean out that clogged inbox. Yes. Unroll.me. Unroll me, please. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about some other strategies for balancing productivity and well-being in this digital era. Wonderful. So I think one of the first things that I like to ask people when I'm helping them to come up with the plan for dealing with the digital distraction in their life is to talk about what I call the third prong. And the third prong is just like when you're plugging in um, an electrical plug into the wall. If you have that third wire that grounds you, it actually helps to channel and focus energy for the electricity. It makes it more stable. And so what I talk about is how do you tap into your third prong, which I define as a set of guiding principles or beliefs that help shape how, when, where, and why you're using technology. And I'll tell you why I like to start here, because I often, when I'm speaking to audiences, get the question about, well, should the schools make this blanket rule about technology? Should corporations change the way that they interact with uh, employees around technology? Should the government make some policies that shape how the industry is reaching people through persuasive technology, for instance? And I think that there is just too much global diversity. There are too many different types of reasons for using technology and different attitudes towards technology. There's different family dynamics around technology that it really comes back to what do you value? How do you think about technology in your life? What value do you place? Why do you interact with it? So that when you can define that for yourself, it really shapes how you individually live your life. And from that point forward, it gives you this opportunity to set up the rest of your your family or work policies or personal uses of technology to be more effective with it. And so let me be a little bit more specific. Um, one of my friends named Raj Daniels, he wound up having a hard time with opening and closing his phone. He found that he is a he's a CEO of a tech startup company and he really wanted to be more thoughtful and intentional about using technology. So he decided that when he was on the phone, it took him away from his family time that he wanted to be with his family more and he wanted to be more thoughtful in his blogging. And so he set up a lock screen on his phone with two arrows. One arrow is red and it points to the left and one arrow is green. It points to the right and it says towards my goals. And the red arrow points to the left saying away from my goals. And every time he looked at his phone, before he swiped to the right, it gave him a moment to have a gut check about is unlocking his phone actually helping move him towards his goals? Because for him personally, he didn't want to use the phone as much. And so that was just a wonderful way for him to tie that message back. 
I've seen a number of other folks who, for instance, they value the dinner hour and they really want to have better conversation around the dinner time, a dinner table with their family. And so what they did was create a phone stack and everybody who sat down at the dinner table had to stack up their phones. And the first person to reach for their phone either had to wash all the dishes or they had to skip dessert or maybe they owed everybody a quarter, whatever it was. But it just set an intention and a focus on hey, this is not how I want to use my technology. Here's how we're going to adjust this so that we can be positive reinforcements for each other and hold each other accountable. And I think that the more that we can have those gut checks, it can help us fight against the temptation and the impulse to check our phones. Um, In the course of my research, the single most shocking statistic I came across was that the average smartphone user today opens and closes their phone on average, 150 times. And that sounds like a lot, right? But what really got me was that if you do the math and you think through, okay, it takes, let's say optimistically, it takes one minute to open your phone, check a message, and then close your phone again. That's two and a half hours of your day just opening and closing your phone, not even (laughs) sending messages. That's just checking them. (laughs) And it really, it just... uh, put things in perspective for me. That's actually 38 days a year, one one twelfth of your year, just focused on opening and closing your phone. So we're talking about a major problem here where we've lost control over the fact of what we're using our time for. We're not even aware of what's happening when we pick up our phone to check it and see if somebody has sent us a message. In fact, we're anticipating messages so often that we don't even have to look at our phone or touch our phone to lose productivity. If we just see our phone, this is called the mere presence study, you just see your phone by your computer, it makes you less effective. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> oh, what I, start, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm certainly guilty as charged here, but um, my new strategy is that I'll just take my phone when I'm working and I hide it behind my laptop screen because if I know that seeing it is making me less effective, I just need it out of my visual space and I need to be able to have the opportunity to regain control over my impulses and to retrain my brain about what focus actually looks like. Um, So that's, that's one good nugget I've really uncovered that hopefully will help some of the listeners out there with their own uh, phone use behaviors as well. You know, uh, when we talk about managing technology, I think this whole thing provides us with an opportunity to become more mindful, you know, rather to be sucked into the vortex and lost in space or cyberspace, if you will, that it's really about making these conscious decisions. And like you say, holding one another accountable. But I think rather than legislating, you know, um, policy, I think it's more important that we teach critical thinking and discernment and emotional intelligence so we can make these informed decisions. No, no, I'm going to put the phone away after six because I just want to plug in with my family. Yes. And I think the temptation is to have an outside force create a rule to help us with this. But you're so right. It comes down to us. It comes down to our choices. And wouldn't you so much rather have that control in your life rather than have somebody tell you what to do. And yes, it's the easier way out to have somebody say, oh, we're, we're going to ban this. <laughs> but I think that to have that opportunity to make good choices for yourself puts the, the power back into our own hands and says, yes, you know, technology is distracting, but we have the power to change how we use it and to use it to become more mindful. 
And one of my favorite examples of using technology for mindfulness is the Muse. It is a device that's a it's a headband that goes around your forehead and has EEG strips on it. And it helps you learn how to meditate through an app. And the app will actually help you to um, to listen to an ocean tide rising. And your goal is to try and quiet the ocean tide with your mind. And what happens in the course of five minutes with the Muse um, headband and app is that it teaches you not only how to refocus, but also how to bring your brain back from when it gets distracted so that you can really begin to develop a longer sense of focus, a deeper sense of meaning and intention, just through a practice of meditation where you can actually see over time, hey, I'm getting better at this. Like I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going and I know how to get better. And it's just, it's been such a powerful tool I've seen both for adults and even for children. I try it out on my kids uh, quite frequently and they love the ability to interact with this meditation device, but to feel like they are just playing and they're just learning, but they're secretly learning some critical skills for maintaining focus in our, in our world of digital distraction. Amy, we're almost out of time, and I, and I hope you'll come back, and this is a, an invitation to do so. But I, before we go, I just wanted to quickly tap into the three types of technology users really quickly, and then we're going to have to sign off and dash, unfortunately. Absolutely. So the three types of technology users are embracers, those individuals who like to try out the latest and greatest technology, the acceptors, those are individuals who are not the early adopters, but they'll use technology if they have to, maybe through a boss or just because it's such a social trend that they finally signed up for a Facebook account or whatnot. And then the last category are resistors. These are individuals who are determined to hang on to their flip phones. They don't want to join the smartphone craze. They don't see the need for technology um, in their life. And so they're fighting against trying to embrace technology in their life. And each one of these has a really important role to play in how we connect our third prong with our use of technology. And it can be domain specific. So I'll leave you with that teaser, but I think there are three powerful models for how individuals can use technology and to shape their own persona based on their personal principles and and desires for using technology. Very well said. And that's my teaser to lead to lead our listeners back to your book. So to learn more and to find out what kind of technology user you might be, or maybe you're a hybrid, the book is The Future of Happiness, Five Modern Strategies for Balancing Productivity and Well-Being in the Digital Era. And the author and my guest today is Amy Blankson. To learn more about Amy and her amazing work, please visit amyblankson.com. On Twitter, you can find her at Amy Blankson and on Facebook, amy.blankson. We're going to jump off to another break and we'll be right back. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Ravi Chandra and Amy Blankson, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. 
Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.